And it's such a joy just to even say those words out loud. He is risen indeed. And the title of today's message is The Resurrection, Our Lynchpin of Hope. Lynchpin isn't a word that's common in our vernacular anymore. And its origin is, uh, takes us back to the 14th century, which it was defined as the peg that holds a wheel on the axle. The earliest carts and carriages had axles with mounted wheels. And the linchpin, as you can guess, was a very critical piece because it kept the wheel from coming off. You could only imagine all the disasters that took place as carts were pushed before the linchpin was developed as the wheels would roll off and they wouldn't stay intact. Now the term is mainly used figuratively to describe something that holds everything together. And the resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel on the entire Christian faith, as I shared earlier. And here is how J.C. Ryle describes it. We need not wonder that so much importance is attached to our Lord's resurrection. It is the seal and memorial stone of the great work of redemption, which he came to do. It is the crowning proof that he has paid the debt he undertook to pay on our behalf, won the battle he fought to deliver us from hell, and is accepted as our guarantee and our substitute by our Father in heaven. Had he never come forth from the prison of the grave, how could we have ever been sure that our ransom had been fully paid? And he references 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. Had he never risen from his conflict with the last enemy, how could we have felt confident that he has overcome the power of death? Hebrews 2.14 But thanks be unto God, we are not left in doubt. The Lord Jesus Christ really rose again for our justification. End quote. The resurrection is the linchpin of our hope. And author Stephen Mathewson shares a similar sentiment in his book titled Risen, which I I brought a a copy of. It's actually a really cool book that Pastor Isaiah told me about that um, functions um, for the 50 days after the resurrection and functions as a devotional uh, and and puts a focus on the the, the resurrection through all the way to the launch of the church age and... and, um, You can see the subtitles, 50 Reasons Why the Resurrection Changed Everything. So just wanted to highlight that resource for you. But this is what Matthewson says. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was witnessed in history by his appearance to more than 500 people after he was raised to life. The sheer number of the witnesses and their backgrounds testify to the reality of this event. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, most of these witnesses were still alive and thus available to be interviewed. Ironically, we often pay less attention to the resurrection than to the death of Christ. We glory in the cross of Christ, as we should, but we give scant attention to the resurrection and empty tomb until Easter Sunday approaches. End quote. He uses this as a premise for his entire book, which I shared the subtitle, 50 Reasons Why the Resurrection Changed Everything. And so it was with Ryle and Matthewson's voices ringing in my ear that I wanted to study a passage 
that allows us to see why the resurrection is so important to our faith, theologically and practically. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 to 5 this morning. Allow me to start by reading them so that our hearts can be drawn in by this passage. The Apostle Peter, who saw with his very own eyes the Lord Jesus Christ after he was raised from the dead, writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Pray with me and let's ask God to bless our study of his word. Father, we bow our heads asking for just that, that you would give us clarity and that you would guide us, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see and understand the gospel embedded truths that are found within this passage. I pray, Father, for all of us that believe that these truths would continue to edify and encourage our hearts as we consider the linchpin of our hope in the resurrection. Father, I pray for those that are here today that have never professed faith, who have never trusted in you, that you would use your word to challenge their hearts and help them to spiritually diagnose their hearts and consider their standing before you. Help them to understand what it is that they're trusting in and the time frame of their lives that is coming to an end and will they see and respond to the truths of the gospel that you have called them to respond to. We want to see this happen. We pray that you'll encourage us in your word We commit our time to you, asking you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Peter, as many of you already know, was writing to uh, Christians who were scattered, who were severely persecuted. Many have lost their jobs, their homes, their families, some even their lives. As James also writes, Widows and orphans living in in distress was commonplace in the first century church, all because of the great persecution that they were under. What words would God give Peter to write to those suffering so greatly? How might the resurrection be used to give hope when life seems so bleak and the future so uncertain? In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Peter provides four reasons to praise God, which we're going to see are all connected to the resurrection, so that our linchpin of hope encourages us to persevere in faith. Four reasons to praise God, so that our linchpin of hope encourages us to persevere in faith. The first reason to praise God that Peter provides comes in the first half of verse 3. Believers have been given new life. Peter started by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. The entire passage has a theme of praise that is woven within from a single Greek word in verse 3. It is the Greek word eulogetos, which shares the same root as our English word eulogy. Blessed be, when talking about God, means to praise, to speak well of, to speak highly of, to exalt It encourages us not only to praise God for this first reason, but for all the ensuing reasons that Peter will share in verses 3 through 12. Who are we called to praise? The recipient of our praise is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again. This verb translated has caused us to be born again is actually just one word in the Greek. And it's speaking to the doctrine of regeneration, which can be defined as an act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. It is the lesson that Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that people must be given a new life, that they must be born again from above, that life is of the Holy Spirit, to have the life of God in them. People who are spiritually dead must be made spiritually alive in order to enter the kingdom of God. And notice first that it is God who is the agent of change and the subject of the main verb here. God causes us to be born again. God causes it. God did it. There's nothing in you and I to cause us or make us be spiritually born again. And you've heard the illustration many times. You weren't responsible for your physical birth, and you're no more responsible for your spiritual birth. Just as Jesus told a dead Lazarus to come alive after being dead for four days, This is a physical picture of what happens to a spiritually dead sinner when God calls him to newness of life. God does it. This is what Peter is saying. And if we do not exalt in this truth, it's either because we don't understand it or we don't believe it. Sometimes people want to take credit for their salvation. And you've heard it said when you're out there witnessing, sometimes people will say, "Um, I had faith, so God saved me. But that's not the way God's word describes it. And you can retrace God's work in Peter's theology just as you look back in verses 1 and 2 where it says, as those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So, right, we see the acts of God. He chose, he sanctified. He is the one who set believers apart. And that is what enabled us to obey Jesus Christ. It was his kindness that led us to repentance and be sprinkled with his blood. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us that it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. God gave new life to us. He fathered us by the act of his own will. He acted unilaterally on our behalf to rescue us while we were yet sinners and his enemies. 
estranged from him, going our own way, rebelling against his holy decrees. He did not save us because he had to. He saved us because he wanted to. And therefore, he alone gets the praise for our salvation. I want you to picture someone standing over a dead body with a defibrillator in their hands. Okay? Electrical cardioversion, as it's called, is a procedure in which a brief electric shock is given to the heart to reset the heart rhythm back to its normal regular pattern or normal sinus rhythm. The shock is given through patches applied to the outside of the chest wall. And all God's people said, thanks, WebMD. Picture God, the Father, standing over you with a spiritual defibrillator and shocking your spiritual dead heart. He is the one who initiated. It happened from the outside. There was nothing from within that could have, have created that or caused that. It was his impulse, his desire to do so. And we need to remember that salvation is a radical term. You don't save someone who is in pretty good shape and just needs a little help. You save someone who is in despair, who's helplessly and hopelessly lost, who needs someone else to step in. The human race is dead in sin, and it is God who reaches down according to his great mercy. Mercy and grace are often used synonymously, aren't they? When we, even in our prayer lives and when we uh, mention them. And part of that's related to, there's a Hebrew word that is, is translated as both. So it does get a, a little tricky. But when we think about the terms themselves exclusively, and God's word does use two different words sometimes to describe them, there are some differences. Mercy reflects empathy and emotion. It reflects God's heart to relieve someone from their miserable condition. And here God's mercy is directed towards those in the miserable death grip of sin. Grace reflects unmerited favor and the actions that a person takes. God's grace led him to take action. For by grace you have been what? Saved. Right? It, It put him into action. God took action and sent his son to die on the cross. In his resurrection, Jesus earned for all believers a new life that enables us to live for him with a regenerated heart that desires to worship him. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 that God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him. Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Christ's resurrection ensures our regeneration and new life in him. Well, there's a second reason to praise God that Peter records at the end of verse 3. Believers have a living hope. Peter writes that believers are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Scripture's use of hope is not like the world's use of, I hope so, or I hope this works out. According to dictionary.com, the world defines hope as the feeling that what is wanted can be had 
or that events will turn out for the best. Biblical hope isn't finger-crossing. Rather, it's alive and certain. Peter calls this a living hope that we've been born again to. It is a hope that isn't anchored to feelings so much as it is to truth and the assurance of God's promises. In the context of God's salvation and promises, the writer of Hebrews says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. One of my favorite verses in in all of Scripture, Hebrews 6.19. And this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The more we believe in the reality of the resurrection, the more we cultivate biblical hope in our walks. There's a direct correlation between these two realities. Biblical hope is a confident expectancy. Someone once said, hope is faith in the future tense. Puritan writer Thomas Brooks says that hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. We must give praise to God because he gives us living hope through the resurrection. Question for you. How real is the resurrection to you? How real is the resurrection to you? Is it just a historical fact that you'll go ahead and affirm in your mind? Oh, dear friend, is it a fact that captivates your soul? Romans 10, 9 says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our head. No, it does not say that. Believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Saved from what? Sin? Hell? The eternal consequences of sin? Yes. But if I can apply it to our context of 1 Peter 1.3, we're also saved from hopelessness. We are given a living hope. It has been said, life without Christ is a hopeless end, whereas life in Christ is an endless hope. Christians do not despair about the past or the present or the future because they have been given this living hope. And this is an absolute certainty only through the truth, reality, and power of Christ being raised from the dead. His resurrection that has proved his work on the cross was satisfactory to God the Father. It vindicated all the injustice, all the suffering and the agony, sacrifice that Jesus paid on the behalf of all who would place their faith in him alone. And it's important for us to also remember Ephesians 2.12, which says that we were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There is no true hope among the spiritually dead. It is the Russian philosopher and novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, 
and my Russian in-laws will probably just say that I butchered that name. But he concluded this, quote, totally without hope, one cannot live, end quote. And I would add, to live without biblical hope is to never live. Thus, hell is an eternal state of hopelessness. It serves as the death nail and the final blow to hope. It is no accident that above the entrance to Dante's hell in his classical writings, that it says this in an inscription, leave behind all hope, you who enter here. Unregenerate mankind is hopeless in a biblical sense because they put their faith in man or in themselves or in a God of their imagination, not the God-man, and thus they're hopeless. As one pastor said, the believer's hope lies not in the man we put on the moon, but in the man we put on the cross. Amen? Amen. Living hope drives us to the gospel itself. And it leads us to an endless hope. It is alive because Jesus is alive. Bodily, literally, everlastingly, the God-man. We are looking forward to seeing him. And that is a guarantee even if we should die. Every genuine believer in Jesus Christ can have absolute assurance that when they take their last breath on this planet, that immediately they will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul sends us a reminder in 2 Corinthians 5.8 to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. The Lord. And that hope, my friend, is rooted in the living hope of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead allows sinners who believe in him to look forward even to death. And the Apostle Paul in the infamous verse of Philippians 1.21 says to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's gain. There's blessing. There's great hope in death. Peter affirms the truth of Christ rising from the dead and that he is alive writing this letter 30 years after the fact. And this is the basis of and means by which our hope is certain. It's alive. It's living. That Jesus himself rose from the dead and is alive. Can it possibly get any better? It can. Because Peter provides four reasons. And we've only covered two so far that are all connected to the resurrection. Believers have been given a new life. Believers have a living hope. And third, believers have a heavenly inheritance. Look at verse 4. Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, records that believers will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If you have the New American Standard translation, it provides the verb to obtain, which isn't in the original language. And so the ESV says to an inheritance, which is actually more literal. Both verses 4 and 5 are connected back to the verb born again to and the participle living hope. So putting it all together would sound something like this. Born again to a living hope to an inheritance. Just as with a physical inheritance, where it's usually property or money or possessions that parents or grandparents leave behind, 
for children, people who receive inheritances like this are oftentimes born into them. Spiritually speaking, believers are born again to receive a spiritual inheritance. It's given to us, not something we've earned. Peter then is led to describe the inheritance in four unique ways, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, we need to understand this concept of inheritance. In the Jewish culture, an inheritance was a big deal. And the background of an inheritance begins in the Old Testament. And here is a quick overview. Abraham was promised an inheritance, the land of Canaan, that he would pass on to his descendants in Genesis 12, 7. And this promise became fundamental in Old Testament theology. And we see the land mentioned through, throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. Genesis 50, 24, Deuteronomy 34, 4, Joshua uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 6, Jeremiah 7. All these passages that talk about the land. Later, this inheritance was seen in some parts of the Old Testament and in Judaism as not so much the physical land as it was a reward for the godly. And it was this interpretation of inheritance which still impacted Jewish thinking moving into the New Testament. This is why we see so many examples of that terminology in the New Testament writings. Like we recently saw in Mark ten seventeen, when the rich young ruler, you'll recall, came to Jesus and he asked him a question and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we see similar languages, uh, language used in uh, um, other examples throughout the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Ephesians 5, 5, Colossians 3, 24, and so on. And this provides depth into the background and the context of 1 Peter and the Jewish converts who were just recently kicked out of the temple and out of all the synagogues, and from their perspective, thought that they were cut off from the inheritance of land that God reserved for his people. Add to the fact that many of them were booted out of their families, cut off from family businesses and estates because of their profession of faith in Christ, and so they lost those inheritances as well. Peter records these powerful words of encouragement for them. Let me tell you about an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that will never fade away, that is reserved for you, believer, in heaven. It's there. And it's for you. I know the hardship. I know what has just happened. And he helps them to see it. And each of the descriptions that Peter uses provides insight. First, our inheritance is imperishable. Absolutely nothing can ruin your inheritance in heaven. Nothing can destroy it. Nothing can make it go bad. God keeps his promises and nothing spoils it in heaven. And we all know this, that the foods that are marked perishable are the ones we need to pay attention to in our refrigerator, right? You know what I'm saying? You've had that experience where you just open up the refrigerator and all of a sudden 
something inside has perished. You know what I'm saying? And you can smell it. Unless, of course, you had a Korean neighbor and they came over to borrow some fridge space and they had a huge thing of kimchi and they dropped that off and put that in your fridge. Or no, no, maybe a Malaysian neighbor who had durian and, and wanted to bring durian over and store it. No. All the white people are like, kimchi? Durian? What's that? Okay. Hey, I'm getting away from my illustration. But, 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 but there are some foods that naturally smell bad. We, we're not going to discount that. But... Or, or aren't as pleasant to some as they are to others. I knew I got myself in trouble here. And I like kimchi. I really do. The elders will testify to that when we have it at Korean barbecue. But so, I got to end this quick. When something has perished, we understand, right? It's, 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 it's awful. It's, it's corrupted. It's corroded. It's, it smells absolutely horrible. And let me just tell you, my friends, there are no stinky refrigerators in heaven. There aren't. Because that which is reserved for us is imperishable. It will not perish. Second, our inheritance is undefiled, which means without contamination, unpolluted, untainted, unstained, unsoiled, without uncleanness or impurity. The believer's inheritance is in pristine and perfect condition. It is free from impurities or pollution. There is nothing in it that is defiled or that defiles. It is free from any effect or influence that would deform or debase it in any way. It is so rich in purity that it cannot be cheapened in any way. And as such, it cannot disappoint us in any way. The curse is no more, and the purity of God and his holiness permeates everything that exists in heaven. And that is the greatest treasure of our inheritance. It's God himself, right? And in, in his presence where there's fullness of joy, in his right hand where there's treasures forever. And none of it can perish, and none of it can be defiled. Well, third, our inheritance will not fade away. Fading was often used to... Uh, describe flowers or plants. And we see a, an illustration of Peter even using this in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 when he talks about things that, that fade away. But there was a flower. It was called an amaranth. And it was the name of a flower that did not fade and was a symbol of perpetuity. Our inheritance is like that flower and cannot wither. It's always in bloom. It's always blossoming. It never loses its hue. It never loses its fragrance. It's beautiful. John MacArthur writes, the term in this context suggests that believers have an inheritance that will never lose its magnificence. None of the decaying elements of the world can affect the kingdom of heaven. None of the ravages of time or the evils of sin can touch the believer's inheritance because it is in a timeless, sinless realm. Later in this letter, Peter reiterates the unfading nature of the church's inheritance. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Quoting 1 Peter 5.4. End quote. 
And doesn't it sound so amazing? I mean, really? We can't even process it, right? Because we live in such a corrupt and defiled world with so many spoiled things and so many corrupted things. It's hard for us to contemplate. But it's the very reason why the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross and the thief was next to him, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the very reason that he could turn to his disciples as they were grieving before he went to the cross and said, do not worry that where I am going, there soon you shall also be, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it's also why Peter concludes in verse 4 by letting believers know that our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. Reserved in heaven for you is a passive form of the verb, meaning we are not the ones who made the, reser- the reservation. God did it for us. Have you ever had tickets reserved for you in an event that you had to pick up at the will call window? Anyone had that experience? Yeah, there's an act of faith, right? <laughs> You're hoping that whoever left you, you know, that you connected with as far as making the reservation, that they left that followed through on their part, right? And that those tickets are there waiting for you. Back in my football days, I had to leave tickets for family and friends all the time at the will call window. And they would come and they would be able to pick up tickets and then be able to come watch watch the games at Purdue. And usually things worked out pretty well. But on a few occasions, there was miscommunication as it related to the number of people who were coming to the game. And sometimes it was my fault. Okay, And they told me, and I failed. I let them down. And it's human nature. Sometimes people who make the reservations let you down, and I'm a living testimony of that. But God always makes good on his reservations. The word reserved means to keep an eye on, to keep something in view, to hold firmly, to attend carefully, or to watch over it. This is what God does. And sometimes when I left tickets at the will call for people to come to my football games there would be circumstances that came up that prevented them from being able to come see the game. And so you know what would happen? The tickets would just be wasted. They'd just be left sitting there and will call. And what's even more amazing about God's reservation is that he will make sure that every believer who trusts completely in him will get to their heavenly inheritance. Which leads us to our fourth and final reason in your outline. Believers have been given new life. Believers have a living hope. Believers have a heavenly inheritance. And lastly, believers have God's protection. Look at verse 5. It lets us know that believers are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter tells these early believers that they're protected or guarded by the power of God. The word means garrisoned or protected by a military guard. It refers to a garrison within a city. The power that keeps us resides within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are seared, literally branded, and marked for the day of redemption. 
according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, as a pledge of our inheritance. And this speaks to the doctrine of preservation, which reveals the preserving work of God. He guards us. He protects us. One pastor said, the child of God has much better protection than even the president of the United States. He has the secret service. We have the sovereign service. He has armed guards. We have almighty God. He has potent protection. We have omnipotent protection. End quote. Our guard on duty is not like a human guard who can fall asleep on the job or one that can fail us and not be sufficient to protect us. We can trust Him completely to deliver us from evil and to lead us not into temptation. And how do we do this? The verse continues and says, through faith, through faith, the evidence of things not seen realizes the presence of our heavenly guard and gives courage and confidence when we are assailed by temptations and dangers. Faith is the instrument by which we access divine strength and protection. Believers are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The last time speaks to the last episode of redemptive history. The fullness of our salvation will be fully revealed to believers. The veil or covering will one day be removed, exposing open for all to see what was before hidden. Our future tense salvation, our glorification. The world does not understand who we are as believers in Christ, nor can they understand the future glory that we'll get to experience. They can't. Beloved, one day we'll all change. All that is hidden will come to light as bright and clear as the noonday sun. Until then, we must persevere and keep our eyes spiritually fixed on the greatness of our God and the greatness of our salvation. We must never lose sight of the resurrection, our linchpin of hope. At the beginning of the message, I asked a couple questions. What words would God have Peter write to those suffering so greatly? How might the resurrection be used to give hope when life seems so bleak and the future so uncertain? And I have to, a confession, I knew the answer already because Peter knew to whom he was writing. He knew their hearts of faith and he knew how they were going to respond. And when I look out at our church family, and when I look out at the believers, I know the hearts of faith of those in our church family and how they're going to respond. And so starting in verse 6, it serves as a fitting conclusion for us. After providing four reasons to praise God, which are all connected to the resurrection that serve as a linchpin of our hope, Peter writes this, and I want you to see this starting in verse 6. He says this right at the beginning, referring to what he's just shared in verses 3, 4, and 5. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Church, he is risen. We started a little bit better than we ended, but that is exactly right. I'll give you time to redeem yourselves. Are you ready? He is risen. risen Pray with me. Father, we do bow our heads right now. Overwhelmed with the the, the truth and the way that you drew drew us in by your word and and the scriptures that indeed have so many gospel truths for us. And I pray that you answered the prayer that I prayed at the beginning before we studied your word, that those of us in Christ, those of us who have made a commitment to um, deny ourselves daily and to walk with Christ and to live for him and to live for his glory, that you allowed us to be even more edified and encouraged by these truths so that when we look at what Peter shared in this, that our hearts can greatly rejoice. And I also pray, Father, that you answer the prayer as it relates to those that are in our midst that don't yet believe, that have been running from you, that have been running from making a profession of faith, that are living for this world and putting their hope, their dying hopes into the things of this world which is perishing corruptible things, defiled things, things that are fading. Oh, Father, would you, by your faith, by your faithfulness and grace, draw them to saving faith? Would you have them turn from their unbelief today and trust completely in Christ and fall on him completely for salvation? Would you lead them to confess their that they're a sinner and that they're not perfect and that you only accept perfect people into heaven. And none of us can make ourselves perfect. We have to be made perfect by receiving the perfect righteousness of your son. Father, save them. Help them to see that they're on your clock and it's a running clock, that time is running out. And that they would turn and commit what's left of their lives to living for your glory. And that if they do that, because you're alive and because it's a living hope, that we can look forward to what our future holds. That we can face any of the challenges and the trials that are sent our way because you'll give us the power to do so. And we celebrate that. Lead them to a church. Lead them to discipleship. Lead them to a place where they can live for your glory. Oh, Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that you'll bless the remainder of our time as we truly rejoice in the resurrection of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.